Welcome to the War Room. Ryan here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Garrett, welcome to the War Room. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Awesome. Okay, the book is The Cultural Transplant, How Migrants Make the Economies They Move to a Lot Like the Ones They Left. Now, that is a bit of a mouthful. There's a picture of the book for those watching yep. online. Um, I always like to ask the title. What's, I always just like to ask the authors, at least, what's in a title and why now? Yeah, I think that uh, it's important for people to know that uh, the experience of North America uh, actually captures something that's an extreme version of something that's happened everywhere. When Europeans moved to North America violently uh, centuries ago, they did not assimilate to the cultural norms and the productivity norms of Native Americans, right? They transplanted that culture. Economists know this. It's a routine fact. Uh, the question is whether that's generalizable. Is this something that happens in the modern world? And economists have checked in a lot of ways. And it turns out that uh, this, what I call a culture transplant, people bringing traits from their old country, passing them on to the second generation and beyond in the new country, this is routine. Uh, it shows up with savings rates, shows up with attitudes toward trust shows up with views on the proper role of government. So these findings are too big to ignore, and they should go out of the dusty journals and be out there in the real world. Okay. So make sure I'm understanding then. You're saying that at least from um, the colonization of America mm -hmm. moving forward, that if migrants come to one place, they're going to import their culture regardless of what's happening, at least in the West. Would you say this is globally or in the West as well? Oh, it's a special, it's everywhere. I mean, the most, I have a, a special case study chapter that's just about the Chinese diaspora and how it improved institutions across Southeast Asia. So across Southeast Asia, one of the best ways to predict how rich a uh, country is, is the percentage of uh, population that's of Chinese descent. So the Chinese diaspora is an important way, has really done a lot to improve institutions across Southeast Asia. So their peaceful migration proves that peaceful migration can have an effect on institutions. Okay. I'm glad you brought up China because that's, that's what I was going to ask about next is mm -hmm. um, regimes that are more socialist, communist, or totalitarian would seem to try to stifle this phenomenon that you're, you're speaking of. And so does the level of government, however you want to phrase that, level of government um, openness um, impact what you're what you're seeing here? Well, yeah, North Korea is an even bigger exception to the rule, right? I mean, it's I think it's pretty obvious to most observers that if it weren't for this ridiculous, evil North Korean dictatorship, that region would be about as rich as South Korea is right now. And part of the reason it's reasonable to think so is because that region of the world um, was at the technological frontier, close to the frontier in about 1500. Um, the era of colonialism messed up a lot of countries that weren't in the West. But certainly since World War II, um, a lot of nations, especially in East and Southeast Asia, have returned to the economic destiny you would have predicted if you'd just known how the world was set up in about 1500. So the more things change, the more they stay the same as long as you adjust for migration. Okay. And so then I think the question some might have is, this is a phenomenon if government or, or all, all things are equal from the government standpoint. Um, that migrants are going to come and they're going to change the culture. Is it always a positive? Is there some negative? Is it a mix? How do you measure 
that aspect of it. Well, it depends on which traits you think are personally good. So this is a matter of subjective value, right? I've had people online tell me, oh, well, if people come from countries that value government regulation, they'll bring a demand for government regulation to their new country. That's awesome. Let's bring in a lot of migrants from uh, countries that really have a strong preference for a strong role for government, strong labor market regs. Let's get that going. So it really depends on what your values are. I mean, I have certain values. I think that uh, something like moderate laissez-faire has been great for human flourishing. I like a welfare state myself too. But um, opinions can differ on this, right? Um, and I, I think an obvious win, of course, is frugality, savings rates, thinking for the future. And we now have studies, we have good studies of uh, from German, Germany and the UK showing that second generation migrants, in one case, third generation migrants, um, seem to import the savings attitudes of the places that their parents or grandparents came from. So these inter, this intergenerational persistence, this failure of full assimilation is really too big to ignore. Okay. And so, and I should have told you, I told most of my guests this before we get started. Talk to me as a, it's off a margin call. <laughs> yeah. He says, talk to me as if I'm a small child. So, so unpack it as if I'm a small child here for me. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah so, okay. So, um, Someone from country A, it doesn't matter. We can we can put countries on if we want to. It doesn't matter to me, though. Moves to the U.S. Yeah, and yeah. so um, some of the things that they're going to bring would be their food taste, their yes. clothing taste. Yeah, um, it's totally politically correct to talk about people importing um, new cuisines to, their, to the new country they moved to. You're totally allowed to talk about that, I've learned, right? <laughs> so it turns out uh, my example of this that I give in the book is, is uh, Italians, right? So Italian-Americans are about 6% of the U.S. population, and Italian-American, Italian restaurants are about 12% of Italian, of all restaurants in America, right? So when Italians moved to America, A, they brought this cuisine, B, they converted other Americans to the glories of Italian cuisine. So there was a meeting in the middle, right? Assimilation is a two-way street. A lot of these uh, uh, immigration analysts that are uh, out there studying uh, what they call assimilation, it's hard to tell whether what they're measuring is really a meeting in the middle. Like if you looked at, uh, if you tried to study uh, whether immigrants have assimilated and you'd say, well, it looks like Italians have assimilated. They eat spaghetti just like the rest of us. Right. So assimilation is definitely a two-way street, something that's very underappreciated. Yeah. And so I guess my question is, um, so the first generation, we'll, we'll use Italian for this this term. I've never been yeah. to Italy, so I don't know what the authentic Italian food might be. Um, but going to other countries and trying authentic food is probably slightly different than what we have here, at least in Texas. Yeah. Um, so someone comes from a town, uh, Italy, they have the the country, the old country recipes, and they, they, you know, they know how to make the stuff. And then as time goes along, either access to the different ingredients might be limited. Um, they're going to try new foods in, let's just say, to live in New York or Texas, wherever they like that. Um, and so their kids, I suspect, are going to bring some of that. Um, but by their grandkids, it's probably going to be um a little bit less and, and and also the recipes that they make at home might have changed because of lack of issues to um you know, food or, or whatever but also their new acquired taste that they got here so when you're talking about the assimilation to a street that's part of what you're referring to it sounds like yeah so the uh, but other americans non-italians are also becoming more italian in the way they eat right so it's it's easy to focus on just the migrants and their descendants and that's important but if I'm thinking about the whole country, I need to think about how the migrants are changing uh, 
the natives, the so-called natives, right? right? Because to your point about the the amount of Italian restaurants that wasn't here before, now it's here. No. Therefore, we all like that cuisine that we, we've never tasted before. Now it's wonderful. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of cultural norms are just like that, right? Economists t- uh, often say there's no arguing about tastes. It's just a preference. Like right. whether you care a lot about the future or whether you care about a lot about the right now, it's just a preference. Mm-hmm. So if you're around a lot of people who are short-sighted, impulsive, who give no thought for the morrow because sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, right? If that, that kind of you know short-sighted thinking might be socially contagious. We have mm-hmm. some behavioral economics evidence on this, but I think all of us wonder about whether this is true, right? Um, so basically, if you're around a lot of people who are a little bit impatient, you might become a little bit impatient. And if you're around a lot of people who plan for the future, you might plan for the future. So okay. there's this element of meeting in the middle that's probably happening everywhere. And so we have this influx of Italian food, Italian restaurants start to open, which then means that perhaps those ingredients that weren't in high demand now become in higher demand in the, in the U.S. And so either maybe farmers might change the way they grow crops or import. Export oh, yeah, companies. yeah. And so it expands beyond that. And, it, and then it begins hard to measure because now it just becomes baked into the society. And someone who doesn't like Italian food for this case, but they wanted this type of tomato gets, can get this type of tomato or whatever it might be because of this influence over here, right? It might, there might be some crowding out, right? That's yeah. why looking at these aggregate statistics, like knowing that uh, t- people of Italian descent are 6% of the country, but Italian restaurants are 12%. That aggregate number just cuts through a lot of this. Well, how much is really going each way? I can tell there was, conti- you know, what we in in uh, public health you call this contagion effect, right? But it's been a great contagion because I love Italian food. And so you have food, you have clothing, um, and then you'd have, ah. as you mentioned earlier, um, political preferences. Um, yeah, you know, in government. So how do you measure that? Because when you get into this debate, that seems to be. The biggest concerns um, are access to resources, uh, and I talk about social programs and specifically here, yeah. and, and voting. Th- that seems to be the bigger things that people are concerned with. Mm-hmm. Should people should should they be concerned? Should that be concerned? How should they think about that? Yeah, I mean, again, it depends on which values you're looking for and which values you think are help produce pros- what you consider to be human flourishing. Uh, but one classic question that comes up in is some a, a survey question like this. Um, do you think the government should take pe- care of people or should people pretty much take care of themselves? And usually people get like a one to five scale, like totally agree, totally disagree, that kind of answer, right? And people tend to import a lot of that attitude from their home country to their children in the new country, right? So it's not like that. just that the, so I'm not really interested in the first generation. I think that's overstudied. I'm really interested in the long run. I'm a long-termist. So I want to know how the second generation, people born and raised in the new country, do they have attitudes that seem a lot like attitudes in the old country? And it's super easy to check now because we ask the same survey questions all over the world. And it turns out that, you know, roughly speaking, about half of people's attitude toward um, should people have, uh, have to take care of themselves seems to migrate from the old country to the new country. And so if you change the analogy and said someone from the U.S. went to Italy, it would work out the same. I mean, if it, the average, if you just took a bunch of random Americans, I mean, I, I actually don't know how the average American like that would answer on this, whether it be that different from the average Italian, right? Yeah, but, I'm just, I'm you just know what I mean, it, right? Like the idea yeah. is that the second generation would be 
would pass things on. Yes. Well, uh, the, the, the problem people, is people pass on attitudes from the old to the new country. Right. The problem is in the U.S. we have a very much U.S. centric mind, and so it's very yes. hard to think outside of that. And so I'm just yeah, yeah, saying, yeah. Your thesis again is is not um, Italy U.S. It, it would be the same if it was reversed theoretically. Yeah, yeah. So assuming I mean, there's a large difference. So I um, I start off the book saying that one of the best things you could probably do for uh, most uh, poor countries in the world would be for those poor countries to voluntarily embrace a policy of mass immigration from China, voluntary peaceful migration. And the reason I can say this is because when you look across Southeast Asia, um, you look at a country like Malaysia, that's about 30% or so of Chinese descent. Um, that country is just a lot richer, a lot economically freer by normal libertarian measures than, say, Indonesia, which is has a much smaller Chinese uh proportion in their population. So people of Chinese descent seem to basically import the attitudes of uh, Chinese, the, the technological prowess that existed in the 13, 14, 1500s in China. They're importing that to the places that they moved to. And their children and grandchildren seem to make those countries more market-oriented on average. Now, with China particularly, how much is that impacted by, you know, um, the Belt and Road Initiative or things like that, that, that would be unique to a Chinese program that, that the U.S. Or, or Italy, in this case, might not have. So the government is coming in and investing in the country and it's sending workers there as well. Um, I, I think the, that's pretty minor, actually, because most of the success was occurring well before the uh, Chinese Communist Party was getting involved on the world stage, right? So Singapore was already a grand success before there was much room for Chinese foreign policy to be of first order importance across Southeast Asia. So when you think of Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, these countries were um, on their road to progress before the Chinese took their big path, uh, their big step away from totalitarian communism toward the uh, muddled authoritarian communism they have now. Mm. And so... As you're playing this out, how should we as a country then talk about larger migration issues or immigrant issues? Um, you, you've said several times, obviously, um, your political preference is going to sway um, this on some level, but it's quite hard to capture the data of all the individual countries where people move to your country yeah. and understand what they believe. So how does the average person think about this issue? Yeah, I think a simple way to think about it is to think about starting with the sort of points-based or merit-based migration systems that countries like Canada, Australia, New Zealand have, right? In those countries, if you're well-educated, have a clean criminal record, um, have skills that are in high demand locally, you get more points. You basically, it's like getting into college, right? There's no strict cutoff, but more, more of a bunch of different good things is better, right? And so skills-based migration systems are already well well appreciated in a lot of parts of the world, right? I think it's uh, worth considering whether we should add one more small weight to, and the simple index I would use to start off with would be, um, how rich is the country? How rich has the country been for, say, the last 50 to 75 years? And I would, the measure I would use would be non-natural resource GDP per person, non-natural resource income. So you'd basically be downplaying, say, um, OPEC countries, uh, since the prosperity there has made the old-fashioned way, pulling it out of the ground, right? Uh, I'd find a way to give a small weight in a points-based system for people who come from 
countries where the prosperity is created through team effort, through collective action, um, through sort of Adam Smith pin factories. Just a little bit of weight to that in addition to a normal skills-based system. Okay. So people come from rich countries on average, just give them a little pluses, a plus. And then one of the things in this debate and topic is um, the theory that if you take a country like maybe Honduras or Nicaragua, the people who leave there are actually Mm -hmm. the cream of the crop, if you will. They have the most motivation. They are the Mm -hmm. ones who are going to succeed. Absolutely. Yeah. And by letting them leave, you're taking the best from the country instead of trying to incentivize them to stay. A, is that true? And B, mm-hmm. how would you respond to it if it is true? The brain drain problem is it's something that happens. Although I have to say, um, the remittances that folks send back, that first-generation migrants send back to their home countries are so large that it seems to outweigh the, the cost of a brain drain under normal measures, right? Uh, where I'd really start to worry about the brain drain problem um, or more broadly, we might speak of the quality drain problem, um, if we don't want to think about you know, brains per se, that is, what if those folks would have been the leaders of government, right? What if they, well, those folks would have helped build the institutions? That's something that's much harder to test. So the simple measure, they send back a lot of money. They, people do send back a lot of money, and that seems to be much more effective than normal foreign aid programs. So I don't want to minimize that. I am concerned that the brain drain problem might be a governance drain problem. That's interesting. But also, the first generation migrants are quite different from the second generation and beyond. Um, all, of the, all of the glorious stories we want to tell about how first generation migrants, basically, they, they chose to come, they made a big sacrifice, they, um, on average, have lower crime rates than, than uh, other Americans. All these things are totally true. We should keep most of our focus, if we're long-termists, thinking about, what about their kids? What about their grandkids? So, And on average, we know there's sort of a reversion to the home country style in the second generation and beyond. Why is that? It's hard to know why. Um, this is a case where I think we have to say um, there's, there's a bit of mystery as to what the reasoning is, right? So it could be that people just feel nostalgia for home in the second and third generation, and they learn more about what the culture is like back home. It could be that it's a version, just the general version of uh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree usually. And so if your parents are a big exception to your culture's rule, you're going to be less of an exception to the culture's rule. So we know it's true. Um, we don't. We can't yet say why it's true, but I think we we can be sure enough that it's true that we should be using it cautiously to guide future policy. I wonder if if you took someone who left a country came to the U.S. in this case, um, it would probably depend on their reasoning. And so, for instance, I'm thinking of someone who escapes. I'm using that term deliberately. Escapes North Korea. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. If they were to escape North Korea, I'm thinking of uh, the lady who's got the book out now. I think it's Yunobi Park. I can't remember her name. Anyways, and she is very much crushing the North Korean government every time she talks about it. It would be hard to imagine that her second and third generation kids would want to go back to the old country, barring a massive regime change. Yeah, 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 sure. Right, right. right. However, if someone came here just because they wanted a job, they couldn't Mm -hmm. get a job where they're at, which is a real problem, and they come here for a job. All of those other things you talked about might not be a big deal. And so the old country, the political system, et cetera, et cetera, might not be emphasized in the home talks and how they raise their kids and whatnot. And so it could be a a matter of why someone left and then how much resentment, for lack of a better term, they have towards the old country. 
Yeah, I mean, I can't. I'm glad to speculate with like anybody else on this topic, right? <laughs> I think people who are exceptions, there are always exceptions to rules, right? Um, my job is to just tell you what the rule is, right? Um, uh, my job is to tell you that if you want to get into the NBA, it helps to be tall. And I know every once in a while, somebody under six foot makes it in, right? Um, but I, my job is to just tell you the general rule. So yeah, you're right. You should find out exceptions. I'm in favor of generous refugee programs. People escape, establish, uh, trying to escape nightmare hellscape countries should be given every possibility to get out. But sure. at the same time, um, if I'm looking for an indicator of how folks in your country are going to do um, in the second and third generation, I might look, I, using the statistical evidence, I'd say, how was your region of the world doing in about 1500 before Columbus sailed the ocean blue and turned the world upside down? Well, well so is there, or have you looked at data from countries that are really war-torn, totalitarian versus countries who have pretty extreme corruption, but on, um, on the average. So if you have Italy, let's use them again. And then all the way on the other end, you have North Korea. If have you looked at the data from migrants from those countries to see the second and third generation, how it pans out? No, North, North Koreans would, it would be great if I'd run across something that looked at say, I mean, do we, do we really have third generation North Koreans yet? Right. Under that measure. Right. Yeah. So, um, it it that's a great question. Um, you know, my best indicator is this: how are things going in fifteen hundred measure? And right, you know, Western Europe, Western Europe, like all the different region in Western Europe, we're about in the same ballpark compared to the rest of the world. Right? Mm-hmm. You can make mm-hmm. these distinctions. People love to obsess over fine distinctions between Northern Italy versus uh, Belgium in fifteen hundred. <laughs> I love reading up on that. But what I should know is that that part of the world was much more technologically advanced than the Americas. And that ended up having real predictive power for what was going to happen later. Going back to the Columbus sailing the ocean blue. um, In my lifetime, there's been a resurgence maybe, or a first surge, if you will, of debating what happened there. Not, not obviously um, what happened in the case of they landed and whatnot, but whether it was a good thing, how much brutality was involved. So there is a question that comes with this topic of you have the raw data that you said that you pull, but people seem to be interested in the morality of these topics as well. And that makes it overly maybe, or rightly, some might argue, politicized, charged. How do you, do you, is it, is, is there, do you weigh the morality of any of this at all? Um, because some might say, well, hey, listen, you're saying that this plus this plus this equals this, but that's a bad thing. We don't want to encourage that. Or they might say it's a good thing. So do, does that come into any of this, this thought process here? Yeah, it does. I mean, I uh, the what academics sometimes politely called the Columbian exchange, uh, which is where you know uh, people moved from Europe to the Americas and goods moved from the Americas back to Europe. We know that in real life, this involved great horrors and involved enormous amounts of slavery. Western Europeans had been sort of dialing down their uh, their use of slavery, their practices of slavery before 1500. And then the Columbian exchange, once Columbus discovered the Americas, happy to use that term because we know the caveats around it, um, 
all of a sudden Europeans just went right back on the slavery cha- uh, train and dialed up the horrors to an unimaginable level, right? So it's it seems pretty obvious in retrospect that Europeans would have turned to that, right? So if we're asking, like, if we got to rerun history and you could magically keep Europeans from going to the Americas, we know that there's probably no sort of, there's there's no way that any time traveler could have preached the Europeans into exploring the Americas, but not embracing slavery on a wide scale, right? So there, there were, I know there were, there were Catholic priests in Spain who tried very hard to prevent this rise of slavery and tried very hard to preach for general humanity, liberal egalitarianism. Totally failed, right? So um, the hit, but the horrors of the past give us information about the future, and I think we do owe it to people, um, to the hor- to the people who experience those horrors, to draw the lessons we can as best we can. So um, basically, the horrors of Columbus basically gave it. They gave the world a number of uh, experiments uh, that were totally immoral to run, and we ran them, and we should learn the lessons from them. And one of the lessons that we can draw from this is that the places where more Europeans moved wound up with the economic prosperity much more like Western Europe today. And so then would you also say that if the Europeans didn't come over, that the Americas would be far more, I don't know if regress is the right word, behind um, um, today? So so there's a slavery aspect, which is negative. But part of what you're saying, it seems, is that we also have to take the realization that it did happen and it did push forward this geographic place. I mean, there are – the horrors of slavery are of, of such a centuries, centuries deep magnitude that it is hard to imagine anything over, overcoming that, right? So – um, all I can tell, what I can say, what I can say is that the prosperity that happened later is also probably an effect of that the the European conquest of parts of the Americas, right? So I am glad to absolutely denounce those horrors, and I'm not willing to say that that trade off was worth it in any way, um, because I mean, I. I some of my first research was on the history of the the aftermath of the Civil War, which taught me about so I was a history undergrad. And so it's very hard to find any moral calculus that that overwhelms that. So um, but we should still draw the lessons from these from these uh, atrocities. Right. So I think that one should learn the best one can from the atrocities of the past. So. Yeah. First, for people who are interested, I think they're most or if not all free on amazon kindle the uh the slave narratives that were recorded under fdr and you can go read those mm-hmm. and, oh my gosh sure i've only are. read excerpts in my training so never have listened to the audio that's good to know well, well i don't know no, yeah. the, the the kindle versions are to, to read yeah. i don't know about the audio oh, yeah, yeah. yeah they, they've been transcribed and so you can you can go read some of that stuff and it is just astonishing for lack of a better term i mean yeah that was part of my graduate part of my undergrad training was in uh and actually graduated cornell was uh learning the the so-called new economic history of slavery Mm -hmm. and uh and i was at that transition point where you covered both the new economic history and the older archival work Mm -hmm. and uh reading a lot of original documents is that's a that's an important way to learn about the horrors of the past so yeah it just becomes it becomes problematic because there, as you as you you know you said th- these things happen, 
and then you got to look at what happened and then um you know what we don't the problem is you never know what would have happened if you didn't do those things and so that becomes a, a hypothetical that's but hard to this answer. is the problem of all causal analysis right we don't know <laughs> right you know with without a pure we hardly ever have pure controlled experiments right one could tell a scenario where if a, just a purely hypothetical scenario right this is a fantasy that if, if europeans uh, a nightmare fantasy right a horror where if europeans hadn't come over then um then people from other parts of the world would have and maybe they would have been worse or maybe they would have been better right it I don't know because we didn't run the counterfactual. It's unfor- it's um there's some experiments I'm glad we're not we're not rerunning again. But we <laughs> yeah. should think through we should think through that the I mean one that well there's too many hypotheticals here to think through but uh at the very least we can learn from the past and realize that the that the that actually a lot of um Catholic theologians who are preaching for human uh, equality and for uh, a liberal tolerance for all those folks were they turned out to be right. So, yeah, by my lights. <laughs> yeah. So. You, you, you mentioned earlier the data. I want to go back to that because I love talking to uh, economists and stuff because they, they know all these little interesting things and they, they break down all the little steps and they, they measure all this stuff. And um, when you're doing research for a book like this, obviously you've been studying this topic for for some time, but where do you start? Because it's not apparent to me how you start to, you, you pick a, a, a point in time, but, but practically speaking, like how do you start to investigate a topic like this? Well, I do it the old fashioned way. I just uh, steal other people's research, right? I mean, I cite it all, but uh, you find other smart people who you have who have uh, gone into those minds and mined out data and checked it multiple ways. And then you say, wow, I think people really should know about this. You know, I started off in about, I'd say, let me call it 2003, um, after I spent a little time in the Senate, which is right over there. Um, I'm in DC. And um, I wanted. To, I decided I, uh, I wanted to study the wealth of nations from then on. I wanted to start, study why some countries are richer and other countries poorer. And that path took me into many different debates. And eventually I started coming across these papers that showed that there was cultural persistence um, that was, and that economists were using methods that you would have thought would have fit more naturally into an anthropology journal, but it was the economists doing the number crunching. And I understood the I understood the language. I understood the statistics they were using. It's pretty simple to just check and see. Are Italian Americans today second and third generation Italian Americans a lot like Italians in Italy? Are Mexican Americans today second and third generation a lot like Mexicans in Mexico today? And you can debate what the word "a lot" is, but more than nothing, right? These relationships turned out to show up again and again for multiple measures. And I thought, why isn't this showing up in the New York Times? Why isn't this showing up in policy debates. This is something that's just a normal fact for economists, but regular people should know about this too. People, pointy-headed people who don't just look at uh, Greek letters and equations all day should know about this. So does that help explain, or maybe this is a myth as well, that why you hear of, you know, in the, in the large cities, I live in a small rural area, but in large cities, a, a Chinatown or an area where a certain demographic might live, they, that they, once they migrate um, from their country, you know, there might be other people from the same country and they kind of band together and then the second and third generations tend to stay there? Or is that more first generation people that you're seeing in those areas? 
those are generally first generation transition points, right? They seem to be a place for that are they're uh, passing on what uh, George Borjas of Harvard calls sort of a sort of ethnic capital, right? Basically, trend uh, migrating is really hard, and so when you migrate from an, from one country to another, you want to go to a place where there's some kind of community that speaks your language, that knows the rules, whatnot, right? So I remember I used to uh, I used to live in St. Louis, and I used to go to this Greek restaurant that was just down the street. And over the years that I lived in St. Louis, I learned that that Greek, the guy who ran that Greek restaurant was basically a person who would help out any Greek migrant who showed up. And so I, I ended up actually going out uh, on a date with a woman who was a professor who was actually Greek. And she had learned, like, when you go to St. Louis, this is the guy you talk to. He'll tie, tell you how it works. So some idea of some kind of uh, an ethnic network that might be an easy way of helping that transition into a new place is... Uh, really valuable for migrants because that's a really difficult transition to make. So then what would be the reason the third generation person has moved out of that area with people who would theoretically have a lot more of in common is the right word, but, but they have just came from the old country. So you talk about that word a lot um, or similar, the people coming from the old country to this area would represent some of that. They would tell the stories or whatnot. So why are they, those people, moving away or, or is there any understanding? I mean, there's always, there's always so many reasons, right? I mean, the obvious one is there's an interesting job that you wanted, right? Mm. Basically you need, you know, like it's a little bit like being a child and growing up, right? Eventually you just don't need your parents as much. Um, you know, once you're a second generation migrant, you almost surely speak the local language quite well. And so you just don't need that part of the ethnic capital to sort of help the transition. You start meeting people and you want to move on and you, Part, this turns out to be actually be important um, that one indicator of one of one thing that shapes your ability to actually have a good career is being willing to move away from home. If you're if you actually have to um, work within five miles of your home, you're really limited. It's like having to set it's like having to date people within five miles of your home. Right. So having a broader network that you can reach out to for employment and for dating, that really increases the chance to find a better match. So broadening the zone is something that just quite naturally happens for people for centuries. Um, some version of that, some version of that is why people have, uh, like, I know more about the history of, of medieval and Renaissance Europe. Moving to a city was a great way to basically just break out of your old networks and try to find a totally new life. Why? Because there are just a lot of people there doing a lot of different things. Cities are great for just breaking out of the old norms and finding something new. Mm. So, so that helps account for, theoretically at least, this, going back to the Italian model, um, increase in restaurants, which is, it's not a localized area. The localized is more the first-generation migrants, the ones transitioning into the country. Um, and then, so let's just put that in New York City, but, you know, grandson might live in Kansas. And so now all of a sudden, that idea of Italian food, the idea of that little bit of that culture, whatnot, that's, that would help maybe understand why some of this stuff spreads the way that it spreads is that these people, as they come to the migrant area, if you will, as they move across the country, the, that's where those ideals are getting imported. Cause theoretically, if they all stayed in that same centralized spot, it'd be hard to yeah. spread the stuff out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, let me point to a historically important version where migration changed the attitudes of other folks. Mm -hmm. um, and this was the great migration of African-Americans from the South, where it was almost impossible to vote from the Jim Crow South up to the North after World War II. Um, we have studies now that show that uh, when African-Americans moved from the South to the North, not only did the local politicians started caring much more about civil rights policy, 
in polls, white Americans also started caring more about civil rights policy, right? So this isn't just a story about food. This is a story about like part of the reason uh, we had the civil rights movement and why it succeeded at actually creating uh, much higher levels of political equality is because of migration. People moved, they changed the attitudes of their neighbors, they improved, in my view, the attitudes of their neighbors. And then that politicians responded because we live in a democracy that kind of pays attention to the voters. So this isn't just a story about uh, restaurants, it's a story about all many kinds of attitudes, uh, trust, savings, uh, views on human equality. Mm. No, it's it's interesting because I get into these discussions with um, some of my, my um, China watchers as well. And, and I always point to the fact that, you know, China, if they as they close down their borders, they tighten their borders. It's because they understand at a far greater scale than maybe we realize the ability for ideas to impact people. And so mm-hmm. what you're saying is, is I think what North Korea on steroids actually understands, which is if you let a bunch of Americans move to the country, well, it's going to become a lot more like America. It's going to yeah. become a lot more like America, a lot yeah, more yeah. like America. And they, and yeah. they understand that, 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 they, and that you can't really stop it. I wasn't aware though, the second and third generation thing, I would have thought the opposite would be true that by the second and third generation, they would have been more North Koreanized in this case or more Americanized, but you're saying it's the opposite, which is fascinating. Well, there's a meeting in the middle, right? So let's say that let's let me give a, a story that that sums up a lot of glibly sums up a lot of research. Treat it as 40% of the old country attitudes last to the second and third generation. If you think of it that way, you'll get it about right. So like a lot of the so you're so if you're bringing in a good thing, you're keeping 40% of a good thing. If they're bringing a bad thing, they're bringing 40% of a bad thing. So Think of that as what's going to last across generations. Um, some study, some traits seem to be higher, some traits seem to be lower. But so, but 40% captured, just a little less than half. So the first generation, though, is on many measures, a lot more like the people in the country they moved to. So the first generation folks look, eh, they're trying hard to fit in, right? They, there's a huge premium on that. They chose the country. Second, third generation, if you think of 40% as being imported from the old country, you'll get it about right. But also remember that not, it's not just that they're importing stuff, it's that they're also changing the minds to move other people in their country in their direction, right? The Italians converted us to Italian food. Never forget that. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So yeah. even, so in the North Korean example, um, there would be some people who would be, if you took a bunch of free market libertarians to, to North Korea, the second and third generation wouldn't be as hardcore libertarian. They would be more socialist or however you want to phrase that. But, but, half, would, but halfway, right? But halfway. halfway between North Korea, if you were literally, take it literally, halfway between North Korea and the Libertarian Party would actually be a pretty happy medium and for by the standards of the world as a whole, right? Right, right. But for North Korea, it's absolutely terrifying. Yeah, they, they would not allow that, right? That would be yeah. a horror to them. Because the 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 uh the hundred generals who run the country know that they would not survive that trans political transition, right? No, oh, absolutely. So is there is there spots where you have found this? I mean, we, we talk about North Korea where, where they won't allow it, but is there a spots where you found this not to be true? That the second and third generation, for some reason, they just know they actually embrace fully more or less, more than that 40% number. Well, I mean, so let me and I know we're using a rough number there as well. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. So let so let me generalize not about individual uh, migrants from certain countries, but about particular attitudes. 
So there's this one, one study of intra-European migration. Europeans moving from one country to another, right? And as a lot of your listeners will know, like in the South, people are more Italian. In the North, excuse me, in the South, people are more uh, Catholic. In the North, they're more Protestant. In the East, maybe they're more, they're more Orthodox, right? Um, and so we have a lot of people moving. That's just religion, let alone all the other differences folks have. Um, it turns out that uh, in the second generation, um, answers to the question, are you religious? can't be predicted at all from the country of origin. So it looks like second generation migrants don't import their actual religiosity from one country to another. So they basically assimilate to whatever the country average is. So that to me, that's kind of noteworthy. Yeah, that's, now, that's, that's just intra-European. That might not generalize to every country in every situation. Uh, but on average, that's what's going on. Another question was something like, uh, how do you feel about the police? So my guess is it's probably because how you feel about the police is going to have a lot to do with what the police are like in your country, not just a generic, how do I feel about police? Sure. Well, and I can also see that if you have a very thick accent and you stand mm-hmm. out when you talk, you might be a little bit more concerned about the police versus if you sound like a local, you. And in the second generation, in the second yeah. generation, you might, um, you'll probably sound more like a local, right? If right, that's right. The, so if that's the third for sure. If yeah. that's and, key channel, yeah. Yeah. It might just be like whether your cops are good or whatever quality of cops you have in your country, you just kind of recognize it after a while. Yeah, but I mean, I, I, but yeah. yeah, no, no, I, I know when I've traveled internationally, um, just knowing as soon as, you know, no matter the standard of comp, just knowing as soon as I speak to anyone, everyone knows. I'm a foreigner. I'm a foreigner. Yeah. And so yeah. there's just that tension there, even if you think everything's on the up and up, just realizing that you are a little bit more potentially vulnerable is, is there. And so just so I can, I can see that. Now, you mentioned the religion thing, um, which, is, which is fascinating. I, I wouldn't have expected that. Um, yeah. What about the continuation of migrants from a certain country? Does that bear any weight on this? So if you have, you know, this put a number, you know, a million coming to a country every year, and then all of a sudden it drops off to like 100,000, does that bear any weight on how people view the old country? Yeah, this is something that hasn't, you know, people speculate about this for America, right? Because people say, some, some uh, historians, either left or right, say, that uh, when the U.S. basically closed off a lot of immigration uh, toward the end of the toward the, in the progressive era, that that closing of the door ended up leading to a period of assimilation, right? Um, I think most of what you're seeing there is that you're not seeing the first generation go through their struggles of figuring out how to fit into the country. So the first generation and the first half of the second generation, those are folks who are like, perceived as visibly foreign to any to in many cultures and so if you anytime you um turn off and migrate shut the door on migration for a while people speaking the foreign language will that that problem will go away if you see that as a problem right but the other attitudes i think are still going on so and the part of the reason i could tell this is because when we look in the uh migration of trust questions which are very well studied like Swedes always show up right at the top. Swedish Americans, right? Swedes, you know, Scandinavians show up as high on trust and Scandinavian Americans show up as high on trust. And like, we haven't had a ton of Swede- of Scandinavian migration to the US in well over a century. So it's not like, well, once we close the door to the Swedes um, and th- once Swedes stopped coming, eventually uh, all the Swedes just became like everybody else. Uh, Scandinavian Americans still statistically distinctive. As anyone who's been to the upper Midwest um, for more than a day or two will notice. 
so how when you talk to people like me, you know, this the, mm-hmm. the dummies on the street here. How do you get people to a cool down and not be so um, hyped up? I, I think I've been to some third world countries that are very, very, very impoverished. I understand. Um, I, I've told people until you go to some of these places in Nicaragua and Honduras, you can't look at someone who comes here and says you shouldn't be here because there's no way you would go there. Like it is, it is, it is terrible. Yeah. Um, People living in America and a few other countries are just super fortunate, right? Very fortunate. So yeah, I've been yeah. to some spots and I'm like, yeah, I mean, I have thoughts on immigration, migration, whatever you want to call it. Um, but but I always start with the spot of if you've been in the bad spots, you understand you understand why people want to leave. Like you really yeah, yeah. you understand why people leave. But if you turn on the TV tonight and, the, and there's a debate about the border or or whatever or what's going on in Europe with immigration, it's it's highly, highly charged. Mm-hmm. Highly charged. And part of that is because the stakes of power that are actually being negotiated is what's driving the conversation um, from my perspective, at least. But two people at a coffee table at a Starbucks, how should they try to talk about it in a way that maybe they can come on common ground and they can understand perspective. They can just at least cool the temperature a little bit. So maybe it's misconceptions you'd want to point out to people. Maybe it's things that maybe it's just go understand the data better. I don't know, but I'm curious, is there a way that you get people to kind of walk off the ledge on this issue a little bit? Well, first, I I try to let people know just how vast the income differences are across countries. And some of it will end up being probably the same kind of stories you would tell about having been in poorer countries. To, so people have a sense that these are people who are, people aren't trying to come to the U.S. on average because they would like an ex, to earn an extra two bucks an hour, right? That's not what they're doing this for, right? They It's that they would like a country where the hospitals actually work. Right. They would like a country where um, their child's chance of dying before the age of 10 is like 90 percent higher or a thousand percent higher, maybe. Right. Uh, Of surviving to the age of 10. Um, So these kinds of these these differences are vast. So we should understand why it is that people want to move to these few rich countries. I do think that if one is egalitarian at all, if you think that um, all human beings are of equal worth at least prima facie, at least at first glance, right? Until we know more about a person. Um, If you believe that about people, it's hard to make the case that we shouldn't just let people come to a country where they could have a good shot at earning five times, 10 times more. Um, So I have a lot of colleagues who are in favor of open borders, completely open borders, and others who are just in favor of dramatically increasing immigration. And in part for that reason, just because there's a sort of, there's a moral there's a moral veil. There's a moral direction that points that way, right? Like a bunch of aid programs. Aid programs don't work very well. We know this, right? Um, fancy statistics, common sense, both tell the same story. So letting people move from poor countries to rich countries that works, and they're going to send money back. So when I um, talk about the consequences of migration policy, what I really think about is that. I think about the fact that there's just a few countries in the world that create most of the inventions that everyone in the world uses. And so there are a few countries that are basically the Bell Labs, the research and development labs for the entire planet. And so for these few countries, and the U.S. is one of them, um, in those countries, we should really be careful that migration policy doesn't mess up their ability to keep inventing, right? So if... If there were 100 or 150 million migrants who came to the U.S., who came from countries that um, had really high levels of government regulation, 
really high levels of corruption, based on what we know so far, it'd be safe to predict that America's government quality would get kind of worse. It would be hard for as much stuff to get invented. So I think one reason to think about um, having a high-skilled immigration policy for a country like the U.S. is because the U.S. should keep being a place where we can invent ideas that can help everybody in the world, including people who are already in poor countries. Okay. Yeah, and to me, it seems that um, the frustration about this debate is anyone who puts out any idea is immediately branded as X, Y, or Z on this side of the debate. And there's there's really no no nuance in this discussion. And it, it gets it gets tiresome to to kind of hear both sides going yeah. on each, with, each, with each other because we we've kind of lost the the mentality that you can have an idea and maybe it's a bad idea, but you can't have an idea. Like, you know, <laughs> and, and, well, people, and go it. we should, we should, it would be good if we had more of a pre-internet world where we can let people kick around an idea for a year or two and just let them, let them try out a lot of what we think are bad ideas first. Just mm-hmm. let people try stuff out. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause a lot of people who have ch- whose views on, who come to their views on immigration at some point, they start out with one version of the libertarian view, which is like, uh, people have property rights, people own property, and the country, a nation has some property rights over its borders. That's like one version of a libertarian view. Another version of a libertarian view is I only own my own personal property, and so I don't have a right to tell people whether they can move to work for somebody else on their property. So there's multiple, people should have freedom to debate these ideas. And when I hear somebody say something absolutely awful, um, I should perhaps treat that as just one step in their intellectual journey. So personally that I, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt on something like that when I can, right? Yeah. No, Especially it, younger people, the younger people are, the more I really extend to them the right to just try to kick around a lot of bad ideas for a few years and find their path. Yeah. And, and, and this is something I say off on the show. If you had a hierarchy of morals or hierarchy of things that you thought were important, you could talk about this policy in a way that you could say, well, okay, you're saying that, you know, whatever your belief on the, on, on this issue is, how does that reconcile with your belief over here, which you say is important and it, it actually, it's actually tied together. How, how do you reconcile that and allow people just to pause and then yeah. flesh out? Oh yeah, I can see now I was thinking about this policy irrespective of my actual belief of this thing over here. So something's yeah. got to change or be rectified. And, and so. I mean, thinking is really hard, right? Learning is hard and realizing that your ideas. That some, like you just said, one idea over here might be inconsistent with what, another idea you hold over here. And so you should at least ask, like, do I want to try to make them consistent or should I look for some way to let myself be in, keep being inconsistent? Okay. So what was your biggest surprise, interesting, most interesting find in writing this book? I think for me, it was really learning, finding a way to learn a lot about the Chinese diaspora. Um, I hadn't thought about it. This is maybe going back a decade now, but I hadn't thought enough about how the what some scholars call the market dominant minorities in various countries around the world. Uh, that's what Chinese migrants are sometimes referred to as in, in Southeast Asia. Um, I hadn't realized how these market dominant minorities can actually end up becoming market creating minorities. That basically they end up ma- helping their country to have better institutions, better governance um, through, a, through a sort of political version of the invisible hand. I think it's really, I think it's great to remember that uh, a well-chosen migration policy can help a country and help its, how its government works. I think I hadn't thought about that when I was much, when I was started off on this journey. 
Okay, I normally ask this to historians, but since this, this isn't a history book per se, if you could have one question answered, um, what would the question be? So maybe it's you know, fourth generation, fifth generation. I, I don't know. But if you could, like, you've looked at the data and you go, oh, there's just no answer to that. What would the question that you would like to be answered, answered? Yeah, I would like to know if there's a practical, peaceful way to just really improve government in poor countries, right? Like, no. is, there, is there something we could do that, um, you know, is it, is it the right vitamins? Is it the right PowerPoint presentations? Is it a certain kind of cultural training? Is there, right? I, w- uh, I wish I am not very, I'm not very. If the answer were no, I would at least want to no, I know. know. I then know. we could call that off, right? Have you read the book, The Bottom Billion? Uh, I know of it. I've read parts of it. Yeah, it's okay. been a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I remember reading through that and just you, you get in there and, and some of the, the thoughts on why some of those countries are poor and how it's hard and how other nations will, sur- you know, they'll be, they'll be landlocked in the desert and other nations won't let them access to, you know, to trade yeah. and stuff. You look at some of the stuff and then just the, the, in, in, in the West, we talk about corruption in our government, but I think, you know, when you look at some of these governments, just the, the unbelievable amount of corruption. So I am um, not. Yeah. The, the neutral rule of law is something that we take for granted in a lot of the rich countries. And um, sometimes that gets clunky and boring and it looks like bureaucracy and some people will call it deep state, but uh the neutral rule of law has really has its strengths. Yeah. So if you, if you find an answer to fix those governments, though, listen, you'll, you'll make Elon, Elon Musk look poor. So don't worry. Like if you can find that question answered. Yeah. I hope you, we can find the answer to that. Yes. I don't expect any easy answers though. No. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're going to point to the book. Where else should we point people to? Oh, um, my uh, website, it's uh, jonesgarrett.com. So it's one R two T's. Uh, if, you, if you spell my name Garrett with two R's, you'll get a guy who played for the Yankees. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Garrett Jones with one R, you'll find me very easily. So. Okay. Ooh. My parents gave me a my parents gave me a search engine optimized name. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it. Would you drop a five star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad free. Thank you so much.